my wife and I like to watch a couple reality shows, and one of those is The Amazing Race. If you've never watched this show, there are pairs of people who are in competition uh, over a course of, of many days and, and many different locations to finish various legs of the race, and the team that finishes first on the last leg is the champion. Uh, but what I love about that is not just the challenges that they have. You know, they're eating food in foreign countries. They're doing unique kind of uh, skill tests. But what I love about it is they've got to navigate their way around places they've never been to before. And when you don't speak the language, you don't know the, the significant locations, you're basically lost. And so you're trying to navigate through streets and, and um, passageways and read signs. And uh, this past Wednesday night on The Amazing Race, the very last part of the leg of the race was to go up this, this little mountain in the city. It's called Mount Axla in Norway. And it was, there's 418 steps to get to the top of this little mountain in the city. And there was a, a couple in the race who were really kind of tired. And the guy was a little bit bigger than the other competitors. So he decided, we are driving a car to the top. So they drove all over the city trying to find the road that would take them to the top, but they could never find it. They ended up in a, in a parking garage thinking the elevator would take them to the top, but it wouldn't. So they parked their car, and they had to hoof it up 418 steps all the way to the top, and they were the last ones to get there. Direction is so critical in life. Now, we have a, a helper today. It's called the GPS. And GPS are wonderful. I rely on the GPS pretty heavily, but every once in a while, even the GPS makes a mistake in giving you directions. Now, wrong directions may not be that significant. It may, it may delay you getting to your destination, but in other ways, it could cost you. It could cost you significantly, especially when the, when the direction is taking you to a destination of eternal significance. And that's what we're actually looking at today in this passage this passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about the way to get to a place. And he says something that actually is fairly controversial. We've been in a series called I Am. We've been looking at these I Am statements in the Gospel of John. There's seven of them. And we've got two more to go today and next week. And the one that Jesus says today is very unique in all of them because Jesus not only makes a declaration about himself... But he makes a statement about all the other religions in the world. And that's where it becomes very controversial and some would say offensive. Here's what Jesus says. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And many of you today have thoughts about that passage, of what you believe about that passage. Some of you have come to a place where you've just felt like, You know, this is one way. Jesus is one way. There are a lot of other ways to get to God. I just choose to follow the Jesus way. But I hope that by the end of the day today, you'll have a clear understanding of what Jesus meant when he said this, but also have a greater assurance of where this way is going to take you if you trust in Jesus. So before we actually get into the the bigger picture, the context of that verse, I'm going to ask if you would pray with me. God, we ask you to speak through your word. We don't always understand what your word says, so we need your help, Lord, to open our eyes, open our ears, and our hearts, not only to understand, Lord, but to have the desire to follow where you lead. May you be the shepherd that leads, and may we be the sheep that follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. It's John chapter 14. I'm going to read the first seven verses of that chapter. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, this takes place in the upper room. This actually is during a period of time where it's just before Jesus is going to be betrayed, led to the cross, and died. He's in this upper room, and actually John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 are all called the upper room discourses, Jesus' final teachings to his disciples. The, the I am statement we'll look at next week is also found as one of Jesus' statements in the upper room. These are very significant things Jesus wants his followers to know before he dies. So in chapter 13, he meets for this last supper, He washes his disciples' feet. He says that he's going up to Jerusalem and will be crucified, but they are not to be worried because he's going to a better place. And Jesus says several things about the way that this whole context helps us to understand. The first one is this. What he's describing is the way to a place. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's speaking of the the, the way to a place. Now, some people, uh, as I've studied this, So that Jesus is talking about, I am the way, meaning I'm a way of life. Meaning, I've told you this new command, love others as I have loved you. That's the way you should live. And in the early church, people were actually called, even before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. They lived a different way than everybody else. And and they lived with this commandment to love very significantly. Now, now I believe that's true, that that is the way to live. But I don't think that's the way Jesus is talking about in this passage. See, that night... He said, one of you is going to betray me. That was Judas. And when he said he was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and and, and that he would rise from the dead, um, Peter said, Lord, I want to go there with you. I'm devoted to you. I'm one of your faithful followers. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you'll deny me not once, not twice, but three times. But he tells him, you guys don't worry. Because you can't go there now, but you will eventually. I'm going to another place. Now, what is this place that he's going to? He says, my father's house. That's where I'm going to. I'm going to my father's house. He's talking about heaven. But he describes it in a way we're not used to describing it. He describes it as a home, a home where his father lives. After he dies on the cross, he'll be buried in a tomb. He'll rise from the dead, walk upon the earth for 40 days. He'll ascend to heaven, and he will go to be reunited with his heavenly Father once again, but this time for eternity. I love this description of of heaven being his Father's home because when you're invited to someone's home, doesn't it feel good? If you're going to meet someone that says, hey, we can meet out at at Starbucks, and says, no, why don't you come to my house? Why don't you come to my home? It's so welcoming. Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you in my Father's home. I've traveled around this world in a lot of different places, a lot of real beautiful places, Hawaii and, and Italy and, and Thailand and Namibia, Africa and Tanzania and Mexico and a lot of places, and some were, were just phenomenal places. But even after about a week in those places, I start to have this craving inside that I just want to go home. Do you ever feel that way? I just want to go home. I want to be where it's comfortable. I want to be where I'm among very 
familiar things. I want to be near my dogs. I, I, just, I just want to be home. As fun as that was, I want to be home. Well, Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place in my Father's home for you. Now, Jesus was the son of a carpenter. To believe that Jesus himself was a carpenter, I know he's a master builder because he made this world in six days. And if he made this world in six days, I can't imagine what heaven is going to be like. Can you? What a beautiful, beautiful place. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. The word there means dwelling places, so it's translated rooms. The old King James Bible translates it as mansions, but we don't get a mansion in heaven. Sorry, I'm going to break, your, uh, break your, your, your view of what's in heaven. You don't get a mansion in heaven. That's not what's promised. You get a room, a room in the Father's house. See, in the Eastern culture, that was very common that, that as kids grew up, the Father would actually add on to the house by building additional rooms. Why? So the kids could be close to them. See, Jesus says he's prepared a place for me in heaven. He's prepared a place for you in heaven. When you die, where will you go? Well, if you trust in Jesus, you know that you're going to go, go to be at home with the Lord. David said this in Psalm 23. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a lot of things that the book of Revelation describes that won't be in heaven. There won't be any more tears. Won't be any more sickness, no more sorrow, uh, no more pain or suffering, no more darkness. It says there'll be a lot of beautiful things, streets of, of, of gold and glass, and exotic jewels and all that. But do you know what excites me most about what's going to be in heaven? It's the Father. We get to be with the Father. See, the joy of heaven and the whole purpose of being in a room in the Father's house is to be near the Father forever. You don't get to heaven and get a key and say, you're on the back 40 just go and enjoy it. We'll see you on occasion. He says, no, you're going you're gonna to be with me. You're going to be near me forever. I mean, that's, that's always been God's desire to be close to us. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve until sin entered in. He had the pillar of fire um, by day and the, and the, or by night and the cloud by day with the Israelites. God wants to be near us. And he wants us to be near him. And Jesus, I'm going to go take you to be with me in my Father's house. So then he says, you guys, speaking to the disciples, you know the way to the place where I am going because I'm gonna, there is a way to that place. And Thomas says, Lord, we, we don't know. We don't, we don't know where you're going. We've never been there. And surely we don't even know how to get there. So Jesus says, okay, I'll make it very simple. I am the way. What Jesus is saying about the way there is that the way is a person, not a path. He didn't say, I'm going to tell you the way or I'm going to show you the way. He says, I am the way. Now, you can use the word way in a lot of different ways. When I say, what way did you come to church? Most of you would say, well, I, I came down Powers, turned turn, uh, right on Grinnell, and then another right on Bradley. I came up Security Boulevard, whatever. You're going to tell me the road you took. But some of you may say this. When I say, what way did you come to church today? I came by way of a car. I came by way of bus. I came by way of um, uh, a truck or motorcycle. Uh, that's, I came by way of my tennis shoes. That's the way I came today. That is what Jesus is speaking of here. Not a, not a pathway, but a means of transport. How do you get from point A to point B? Jesus says, through me. I am the way. The answer to the way is himself. He didn't tell us six steps to get there. He says, no, I am the way. Which makes Christianity so different than other religions. Other religions are based on some person's teachings. 
And it's required that the follower adhere to the teachings. So there are things to believe, rituals to practice, devotions to honor. And then even then, when you do all those things, you have to rely on the God they serve to grant you favor. For example, with the religion of Islam. Now, you need to know that most Muslims are not terrorists. They're very good people, very loving, genuine people. But in their book, the Quran, it says, When the day of judgment comes, the scales will be weighed, and those who weigh heavily on the good will go into paradise, and those who weigh more heavily on the evil or the bad will live in hell forever. And that a good Muslim will keep the five pillars of their religion, faith in Allah and his messenger Muhammad, prayer, which is the five daily times of prayer, charity, which is giving to the needy, Fasting, particularly during the season of Ramadan, and then sometime during their life, making a pilgrimage to Mecca. In Judaism, there are a whole series of laws to obey. In Buddhism, there's the eightfold path. In Hinduism, there are devotional exercises and knowledge that is to be grasped. And people will often say things like this. Well, all religions actually lead to the same place. But if you believe that, you're very ignorant of what religions teach because they don't teach that at all. They teach very different contradictory things. For example, in Buddhism, and I shared this last week, that Buddhism believes that nirvana, the ultimate place to get after you've been reincarnated again and again, is where your desires are totally eliminated. Your personality is totally absorbed into the cosmos. You're like a drop of water that falls into the ocean and you just dissolve forever. It's gone. Christianity says that you maintain your personality, your individuality, and your desires aren't eliminated, but they're fulfilled in heaven. Two very different destinations. How can you say they all teach the same thing? They're all going into the same place when their destinations are different. They're not the same. But here's what's so distinctive about Christianity from other religions. Other religions are all about teachings and personal followership, but the distinctiveness of Christianity is not what I do, but what someone else has done for me. That's so critical. Not what I do, but what someone else has done for me. Because you can say, well, aren't there a lot of good people in other religions? Depends how you define good. Because none of us are good enough. All of us have fallen short. Followed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were separated from God. And we've all followed in their footsteps. Sin separates us from God. We've broken his commandments. And so here's the common view. Well, we'll overcome our badness with our goodness. I'll do a bunch of good things, uh, things that prove my love for God, and the scales will weigh in my favor. I'll overcome badness with goodness. But here's the problem with that. How much goodness outweighs the badness? Do you know? Do you know for sure? Do you know you've done enough good things? See, here's what we find in almost every religion. People burdened. By continually doing good things, hoping, hoping they've done enough that the God will give them grace and favor when they die. There is not assurance because assurance isn't granted and can never be granted until they actually die and stand before their God. That's a fearful place to be. See, in Christianity, we don't trust our goodness. We trust in Christ's goodness because we weren't good enough. God overcame our badness, not with goodness, but with forgiveness. With forgiveness. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Here's what God did. God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners. 
Christ died for us. The cross is the demonstration of Christ's love for us. But it's more than that. It's also a demonstration of God's justice. If you go back in Romans chapter 3, this is a powerful passage. But listen to what it says here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate. Remember you demonstrate His love through the cross? Now it says He demonstrates His righteousness because in His forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. God is just and God is loving in that he justifies those who have faith in Christ. Love and justice intersect at the cross. God's love and his justice intersect at the cross. In the cross, God upholds the demands of the law. A penalty must be paid. My son will pay it. And his heart to love. And in that payment, I will show love to all mankind. Josh McDowell, who's spoken on a lot of college campuses, wrote a little book called More Than a Carpenter. And in that book, he tells a story of a a lady driving her car in California. She got a a ticket for speeding, had to show up before the judge. And the judge gave her a sentence of a $100 fine or 10 days in prison. And just after the judge gave that sentence, he took off his robe, came around the judge's bench, stood next to that woman, pulled out his checkbook, and wrote a check for $100 and handed it forward. See, what you don't know is that that judge was her father. And in his love for his daughter, he paid her debt. You understand that in the cross, our heavenly father sent his son to come down to pay our debt as an act of love. But while he was honoring the law, he was expressing his love. The law was fulfilled, the debt was relinquished, and the relationship was restored. That's why the cross is so beautiful. See, all other religions seem to find a place for Jesus. They like Jesus as a prophet. They like Jesus as someone we should look to for wisdom, someone to show us how to live, but they will not accept Jesus as Savior. They will not accept Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In fact, Islam is offended by the fact that we would even suggest that Jesus would die for sins. But that's what the Bible tells us that Jesus did. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. See, Jesus says one more thing, and this is probably the most controversial piece of it. He says the way is exclusive. The way is exclusive. That no one can come to the Father except through him. It it sounds uh, bigoted. It sounds closed-minded. It sounds arrogant. I mean, it, it sounds like Jesus could have been far more loving to say, I am one of the ways. I mean, I'm a good way. Maybe I'm the best way, but there are a lot of other ways. But had Jesus said that, He would have been lying. See, Jesus is the way and the truth. And if you tell someone a lie to make them feel good, is that loving? No. So Jesus can't say that. He can only tell us what's true. Now, here's something you need to know about truth. Anytime you say anything is true, you draw a line in the sand and say, this is true and this is false. So if I say the sky is blue, and you say, well, I really think it's red. Well, it can't be both. Either only one of us is right or or we're both wrong, but you both can't be right. It's one or the other or none. can't be both. 
When you say 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Some of you hesitated. It's not, not a trick question. It's 4. Always been 4, always will be 4. Someone comes along and says, you know, the new math says it's 5. You go, no, 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 no. Can't be 5 because it's 4. And if it's 4, it means it can't be a million other numbers. See, any time you say something is true, something then is false. A lot of things are false. And if Jesus says, this is what's true, other things are false. Now, I heard this story years ago. It's kind of a parable of world religions. It says, there were, there were a bunch of blind men trying to describe an elephant. And one of them said, you know, it's, it's like a tree. He grabbed the leg and says, it's like a tree. It's, it's solid and round. And, and someone else says, no, he's grabbing the tail. He says, it's like a rope. And someone else touched the ear and says, no, the, the elephant's like a big fan. And someone else grabbed the trunk and said, no, it's like a big, thick hose. And someone says, see, they're all, they're all, they all have a piece of the truth. That's like, like world religions. They all have a piece of the truth. But let me tell you something. We know in that story that there actually is an elephant. And none of them are seeing the complete picture. Right? There is an elephant, and they're only seeing a piece of the picture. What if we went to the person who knows about the elephant and say, that's the one I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe the one who sees the big picture. That's who God is. God knows all. God sees all. Religion, which is man's attempt to find God, truly may be just a piece of it. And there are good things, and there are truthful things in all religions. Even atheists, I, I understand our, our friends are out in the, in the street today. They have, there's truth that atheists believe. There, there are many truths. But we believe this truth about Jesus because he spoke it. And when we talk about tolerance, uh, of how we need to be tolerant of, of other religions, if you go to anywhere in the world, you will find that Christian nations are extremely tolerant. They, they, you can put up a, a, a Jewish temple, a Buddhist temple. You can have all kinds of different religious groups within your own community. Nobody gets shot. Nobody gets killed. Nobody is persecuted because of it. But you go into other countries where there's a major religion like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, and believers will be persecuted and shunned and sometimes imprisoned and killed. The love of Christ actually gives us compassion for others. Now, did Jesus' disciples understand him as being this narrow? Absolutely. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Here's what the apostles said. There is no, uh, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other. There's just one name of Jesus. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, one mediator. His name is Jesus. And this should be a cause for gratitude, not arrogance. This doesn't prove we're better than anybody else. This should just make us grateful. Gandhi once says, I, I love their Christ. I don't love their Christians. And the reason is because sometimes we can be very arrogant. We can use the Bible like a battering ram over people. We can become very judgmental and harsh toward other people, saying like, I've got it, you don't. I know the truth, and you don't. When we ought to be filled with such gratitude, when I was a children's pastor, we'd take kids to this camp, and uh, one of the field trips at camp was this area out in the woods where there was a crevice in some rocks that actually was an entrance to a cave. So we would take the kids down this, this little uh, rocky entrance where it opened up into a little cavern. We'd have our flashlights with us. And we'd invite the kids, whoever wanted to, to walk the loop. What that meant was they would follow us 
And we would go down a path that got narrower and narrower and then got to a place where we actually had to get down on your knees and lay down on your belly and crawl through a hole that was just a little bit bigger round than I am. Now, I'm six foot three, and I'm claustrophobic. I don't like tight spaces. And once you get in there, the only thing you can do is, like, wiggle your body forward to get through there. Or you have someone pull your feet and drag you out. So... So when I'm in the, in the middle of there, I'm starting to get, <sighs> I'm breathing heavy. You know, I want to get out of here. I feel trapped. I'm wiggling my way out, and then it opens up. And then you go through another passageway where you can't even stand up. You're crawling through the, walking through this place. Then you've got to go over another ledge to get to the open area. And you know what? When I get to the end of that thing, I am so grateful there is a way out. I, I don't stand in there and go, you know, God, how come you didn't make this so there's like more options than this one? I'm just so grateful there's one. God didn't owe us a way out. We should be so grateful that there is a way. That there is a way. And Jesus says, I am that way. See, I think some people look at eternal life as sort of this vacation destination, like you're going to Disney World. Like, you can get to Disney World a lot of ways. We can go this route and that route. We can go by car, train, a lot of different ways to get to Disney World. We're all going to get there eventually. Well, we're not going to the greatest place on earth. We're going on to the greatest place in the universe. And Jesus says, you can't get there by a number of different highways and modes of transportation. You get there through one way, and it's me. I am the way. Now, just because it's exclusive, meaning it's narrow, doesn't mean it's elusive, meaning it's, it's, it's out of our reach. Because God made it very reachable for all of us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes, who can believe? Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Even a child can believe. It's within the grasp of a child. Every man, woman who hears, this is in the grasp. It is, it is, it is attainable for them. You may say, well, pastor, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the way for me. I just don't like saying he's the way for everybody else. I mean, that, I don't like the controversy that brings. Okay, I get it. I understand the, the feeling you want to keep those relationships. But let me ask you this. Was Jesus right when he made that statement? That I am the way and no one gets there except through me? Was he right or wrong? And if he was wrong, was he mistaken or was he lying? If he was mistaken or lying, what else is he mistaken about and what else is he lying about? And is that the kind of person you want to entrust your eternal destiny to? Really? It's okay for me, but I don't think it's true for you. It doesn't make any sense. We should be filled with this passion. See, I need to let everybody know. See, people will say like, well, pastor, have you looked at all the other religions? I mean, there's hundreds, if not thousands of religions, investigated all of them to prove that they're all wrong except for this one. I haven't. I haven't. I do know this. The one who says he is the way died and rose from the dead. Tell me someone who's done something better than that. I'm going with the guy who rose from the dead. How about you? That's what I'm trusting. I'm trusting his words. If he could do that and he says he can take me to heaven, I'm trusting in him. Two thousand ten, tragedy happened in Chile. A mine collapsed, trapping thirty-three miners underground. People didn't know if they even survived. But after a couple of weeks and drilling several holes more than two thousand feet into the into the ground, 
they, they, they hit an opening where the men were, and they found out that every single one of them was alive. They ended up having to stay down there for 69 days while an 8-inch hole was being drilled. And what they did on the day that they were to excavate those men or extract those men from the cave was to send down this capsule. It, it was just a very narrow capsule. Down more than 2,000 feet into the shaft, men would get inside that capsule one at a time and be pulled to the surface. You know, I read a lot about that this week. I, I didn't read a single article that said, man, I wish there were more than one way out of that place. They were extremely grateful there was a way. And you know how they, how they got out? Not a single man climbed out. Every single one had to submit himself to the capsule to get inside of that, to be still, and allow himself to get pulled out of the pit. You know, it's so picturesque of what happens in our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says that you cannot get your way out of the pit. See, sin has collapsed our world, our marriages, our lives. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We can't get out by ourselves. But God says, I'm sending the rescue capsule down, and his name is Jesus. And if you are in Christ, in Christ, if you surrender your life to Christ, if you merge your life with his, he will bring you up to this place called his father's house. Isn't that that incredible that he would do it? And all you have to do is entrust yourself to him. See, Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me. You can't make it on your own. You can't work your way up. Trust me. See, trusting Jesus is the sure way to a forever home with God our Father. It's the sure way. He wants to take you there. It's the one thing I know about the future with certainty. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for you and for me.